Welcome to Antisocial Studies. Before we start today's episode, I just want to remind you that I'm on Patreon, and that's how you can show your support. You go to patreon.com slash antisocialstudies. You can become a member for as little as $1 a month. Uh, you'll get access to a lot of website materials, especially helpful for teachers. And if you subscribe for $3 or more a month, you get access to extra special mini episodes where I talk about the news uh, and declare manifestos about elections and all these crazy things. If you can't do that right now, that's no problem. But if you are looking for a way to support me and what I'm doing in my tiny little guest room, that is a great place to start. Thank you so much. All right, buckle your seatbelts, because we've made it to the only event in American history that really matters. World War II! I'm just kidding. Uh, but there are a lot of people who think that. Like, it's amazing how many people come up to me at parties and tell me they're a, quote, history buff, only to find out that they've just read, like, 30 books on D-Day. And I mean, like, I'm not knocking D-Day. I'm a big fan. And I'm not knocking people who are really into World War II, meaning dads and uncles everywhere. But uh, hopefully by now you've seen that there are so many important moments that define the United States. So if you've been following along with this podcast, you know how I feel about military history. Uh, am I going to go into the troop movements at Guadalcanal? No. Just watch The Pacific on HBO. It's so good. Uh, as always, what I'm going to try to focus on the most are the big picture questions. Why did we get involved in World War II and how did it change our country? So today we're talking about the Second World War or Tom Hanks's war. This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let's go back in time. one u.s entry okay so for context uh hitler came to power in like 1933 he became extra aggressive in 1936 and the war in europe started in 1939 okay okay uh, if you want more detail than that just go check out episode 12 from season one which is all about the war from a world history perspective but also relevant to our conversation today is to understand the rise of japan so if you remember from season one, in the late 19th century, Japan had reinvented itself as a nationalist slash capitalist state looking to become the major power in the Pacific. But hey, we were becoming a nationalist capitalist state looking to become the major power in the Pacific. We took the Philippines fair and square. So things started ramping up between the U.S. and Japan when Japan became extra aggressive in 1937 with the invasion of China. Again, for more detail, go check out my season one episode on the war. What I want to focus on today is why did we enter World War II, or really more accurately, why didn't we enter the war earlier? So since George advised us against entangling alliances in Europe, we had been a mostly isolationist country. And to be clear, we got involved in the Western Hemisphere, thanks Monroe Doctrine, but we tried to stay out of European infighting as much as we could. And just a few years earlier, we had gotten dragged into a European World War, and it was not fun. Like, what did we get for our trouble? A global depression, disenchanted young people, and race riots? I mean, sure, we also got flappers, but I'd say it's a net negative. So our isolationism was only strengthened by the Great Depression. Like, we need to focus on ourselves for a while, show a little self-care, before we can go out and fix other places. Because you can't love someone else if you don't love yourself. Am I right, ladies? And I mean, this all makes sense, but it's also going to lead to some really unfortunate decisions in hindsight. You know, like denying entry to Jewish refugees trying to flee Nazi Germany. 
Now, the most extreme of the isolationists was an organization called the America First Committee. Future presidents JFK and Gerald Ford were both members, and it was founded by a law school student who was also the son of the Quaker Oats guy. Not the guy on the box, but like his dad was one of the co-founders. And I do like to imagine that they both looked like the guy on the box. Anyway. The most famous voice of the America First isolationist movement was pilot Charles Lindbergh. You remember the guy who flew solo across the Atlantic and was a handsome hero whose baby was kidnapped and murdered all within the span of about five years? Oof. Sorry to break it to you, but he was complicated. So in his speeches, arguing that the U.S. should stay out of European affairs as Nazi Germany was rising, he often made reference to white supremacist ideologies that sounded pretty similar to the kind of stuff Hitler was saying. To be fair, he also declared that, quote, no person with a sense of the dignity of mankind can condone the persecution the Jewish race suffered in Germany. But in his statement, he very clearly is talking in the past tense. The Jewish people have suffered in the past, but not currently. And then he also said that Jewish Americans were, quote, a great danger to this country because of their large ownership and influence in our motion pictures, our press, our radio, and our government. And he also has way more quotes that sound something like this, quote, our bond with Europe is one of race and not of political ideology. Or this, quote, we can have peace and security only so long as we band together to preserve that most priceless possession our inheritance of European blood, only so long as we guard ourselves against attack by foreign armies and dilution by foreign races. Uh, yeah. Uh, and he was beloved in Nazi Germany. He was invited to see the buildup of the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe. Luftwaffe? Luftwaffe. Oh no, military history buffs are furious about that already. What this means is that an American celebrity pilot was invited to see the result of Hitler directly violating the Treaty of Versailles as he was in the middle in 1937 of conquering land in Europe, also in direct violation of the Treaty of Versailles. But you know, Charles Lindbergh sure was handsome. So there were some real concerns that isolationist groups, especially the America First Committee, had actually been infiltrated by real Nazis, and it would make sense. Uh, They weren't super worried about France and Britain unless the U.S. got involved in the war. And there was another American pilot, a lady named Laura Engels, not the woman who wrote Little House on the Prairie, different. She used her plane to drop anti-intervention pamphlets over D.C. in 1939, just after the Nazis invaded Poland. In 1940, after Hitler had conquered France, she actually just reached out to the head of the Gestapo, asking, like, how she could help the cause. And his response? Stay in the United States and keep working with the America First Committee. Oof. Uh, Side note, this is why a lot of historians were surprised when Trump announced his slogan was America First. I'll let you decide how you feel about that. Okay, but the reason why the U.S. stayed out of the war wasn't mostly because of handsome pilots or Nazi spies, although all of that would make a great movie. Like, we don't have enough movies about World War II. I've always said that. But there were other reasons we didn't want to get into a war that were less anti-Semitic. For one, a senator named Gerald Nye had published a report finding that American arms factories had made a ton of money off of World War I. And this may not be a surprise to us today, but it was to a lot of Americans who all of a sudden wondered, like, wait, did we just send our men to go fight in a muddy trench because rich dudes back at home wanted to make more money? Oh, can you imagine how those people are going to feel when we get to Vietnam? 
So Congress in the 1930s began passing neutrality acts that made it illegal to support countries at war. At first, in 1935, we couldn't sell arms to countries at war, including our own allies. But then as the threat of Nazi Germany and Japan grew, we built in a few loopholes. So in 1937, we established that if a nation at war wanted to buy non-military supplies from us, they could on a cash and carry basis. Like you have to send your own ships to pick it up and pay us in cash. It's kind of like when you list a couch on Craigslist and the buyer asks you to deliver it to their house. Mm, No, the entire reason I listed it on Craigslist is just so that I wouldn't have to figure out how to get it out of my house. The reason we insisted on cash was because, you know, our banks weren't super trusting of loaning foreign countries a bunch of money in 1937 in the middle of an economic depression, which seems reasonable. But by 1937, public sentiment was slowly putting its toes in the water of intervening in Europe. For one, a fascist dictator, Francisco Franco, won the Spanish Civil War, and people were like, oh shoot, I think fascism may be just as scary as communism. It also should be noted that even though most of the country and Congress was isolationist, our president, FDR, was all for intervening. He basically believed that we were going to get dragged into war at some point anyway, so we might as well get out in front of it. And FDR did get out in front of it potentially in violation of the Neutrality Acts. Hmm. Remember last episode when I proposed that FDR was a super nice non-dictator totalitarian leader? Yeah, well, he continued selling weapons to China as they were fighting the Japanese invasion. Uh, To be clear, he's supporting the nationalist government that is also fighting Mao's communists in China at the same time. It's kind of a kill two birds with one stone kind of move. And he even secretly authorized U.S. pilots to formally resign from the U.S. military so they could go create a first American volunteer group to go help the Chinese military. They became known as the Flying Tigers, and their job was to bomb Japan and defend China. Now, ironically, a lot of delays meant that they actually didn't see any action until after Pearl Harbor and our declaration of war. So people were probably just really impressed, like, whoa, how did they get over there so fast? And FDR's just kind of shrugging, I don't know, just kind of pretending that he's a really efficient commander-in-chief. So back to 1939, war begins in Europe, and the U.S. quickly decides that we will sell weapons to Britain and France, but it's still a cash-carry agreement. But again, FDR finds a loophole. Britain had asked the U.S. for warships, and FDR was like, Well, I'm not technically allowed to sell you warships, but we could trade them for the use of British bases in the Atlantic Ocean. Haha, <laughs> tricky FDR. This is known as the Destroyers for Bases deal, and the big deal here is that the public was mostly supportive. It showed that we were starting to come around to the idea that we should, like, maybe help our allies fight Hitler. Even so, we are still particularly wary about fully opening ourselves up to the chaos in Europe. In one of the darker moments in our history, in 1939, the SS St. Louis arrived in Havana, carrying 930 Jewish refugees. So the ship is not allowed to dock in Havana, which is essentially U.S. territory at this point. And so they circle for days waiting for a U.S. port to agree to accept them. And no one ever does. And they're sent back to Europe. The captain of the St. Louis is an unsung hero in this story. He himself was a German Jew. And he went above and beyond trying to save the Jews on the ship. He considered purposefully running aground in the U.S. so the Jews could escape. But the U.S. Coast Guard began, quote, protecting the ship to prevent that from happening. When Canada refused to accept them either, he negotiated that he would only return across the Atlantic if the U.S. helped find places for them to go that were not Germany. Eventually, almost a third of them were accepted in Britain, where they mostly survived the war. The other two-thirds went back to continental Europe, where about half of them, or 254 people, were eventually killed in the Holocaust. 
Now, we get a little more lenient in 1940 after we see pictures of Hitler in front of the Eiffel Tower, right? Hitler conquers most of France pretty quickly. And so we pass the Lend-Lease Act that allows the U.S. to loan or lease out military supplies to the Allies with the understanding that they'll either return them or pay them back after the war is over. Like, just call 1-800-RENT-A-TANK now and claim your super special installment plan. And we also start allowing the U.S. Navy to protect ships carrying supplies to England and France in the convoy system. So all of these are moves that are inching us closer and closer to outright war. And as usual, FDR was about 10 steps ahead of the country. Like, he and Winston Churchill had been talking and becoming war BFFs even before the U.S. was at war. In August of 1941, they signed the Atlantic Charter, which established that both nations were committed to building a post-war world of democracy, non-aggression, free trade, and freedom of the seas. Oh, hey! Some of Wilson's 14 points finally made it somewhere. That's cool. Apparently at this meeting, FDR also implied to Winston Churchill that he was looking for some sort of incident that could justify him fully joining the war. We even had a standoff with a German submarine where they claimed that U.S. ships sent bombs at the sub to provoke an attack. It seems that the German subs did ultimately fire first, but it's also pretty clear that the U.S. ships were being really aggressive in the Atlantic, like seeking out German subs instead of just protecting unarmed American ships. So even though German U-boats were firing upon and sometimes sinking U.S. ships in the Atlantic, FDR waited. He felt like he needed a more clear-cut event that would bring public support completely behind him in the war effort. Oh, be careful what you wish for, Franklin. While the public was watching Nazi Germany parade around continental Europe and invade Soviet Russia, Japan was also expanding throughout the Pacific. So as Japan had taken control of more and more land in the region, starting with their invasion of Manchuria in 1932, uh, in the response, throughout the 1930s, the U.S. tightened economic restrictions on the island nation. So we refused to sell them, quote, strategic materials like iron, airplane fuel, etc. Now, ironically, this really only increased their need to expand to find new sources of those materials. But, oh well, you live and you learn. So as the war between China and Japan developed, and it became clear that the U.S. was backing the Chinese government, Japan signed an alliance with Germany and Italy in response. In July of 1941, Japan made a big move and invaded southern Indochina, what we today call Southeast Asia. They took control of British and French colonies in the region. In response, FDR froze all Japanese assets in the United States. They reduced oil shipments and they sent General Douglas MacArthur. Remember the bonus army guy who sent in tanks to clear a camp of homeless American war veterans? Yeah, that guy. He sent him to the Philippines, which was our territory at the time, to start building up American defenses. So at this point, it's clear to those in power on either side that war between the U.S. and Japan is most likely inevitable. And the question was just who's going to make the first move. So as the two nations were negotiating in D.C., U.S. intelligence was decoding messages that Japan was preparing for war. And to be clear, that wasn't much of a surprise to the U.S. military. In late November, the naval base at Pearl Harbor received a general war warning, but there was no specific mention of Hawaii as a potential target. Basically, the military was like, hey, we're probably going to have to fight Japan at some point. They're probably going to attack us somewhere at some time. Just a heads up. And the leadership at Pearl Harbor kind of figured that the more obvious targets were places way closer to Japan, like Guam, the Philippines, etc. Like, attacking Pearl Harbor in Hawaii is probably the most brazen of the attacks they can do, because it's a direct attack on a U.S. base and American sailors. So, I mean, they weren't wrong, because on December 7th, 1941, Japan did attack the Philippines, Guam, etc. But they also attacked Pearl Harbor, direct U.S. soil. 
And as a result of the surprise attacks, eight battleships, three cruisers, three destroyers, and four other vessels were sunk or seriously damaged. Over 180 aircraft were destroyed, and most importantly, 2,403 Americans were killed, with over 1,000 more injured. So this is going to be the worst attack on the United States in its history until September 11th. Now, I want to clarify what I mean when I say a surprise attack. And like, you can't see me right now, but just know that I'm using air quotes when I say surprise. Because it's true that the attack on Pearl Harbor was a surprise. Like, there's a conspiracy theory that the U.S. government knew and let it happen anyway to justify going to war. But that conspiracy theory was first circulated by a guy named John Flynn, who was a co-founder of, drumroll, the America First Committee. Oh, them again. So most historians reject this idea that the U.S. had, like, tangible knowledge of the attack beforehand. The attack itself was a surprise, and it was a shock to the American people, who'd really mostly been focusing on Hitler. Keep in mind that the U.S. had never really been attacked on its own soil, at least not since the War of 1812, but historically, the attack wasn't quite as surprising. I say this because many Americans are kind of presented with the idea that the U.S. was just hanging out in Hawaii, minding its own business when Japan attacked us out of the blue, and that's obviously not true. Tension between the U.S. and Japan had been brewing really ever since Matthew Perry showed up in Tokyo with gunboats in the 1850s. The question was not whether or not we would go to war with Japan, but really when. And on December 7th, FDR got his clear justification for war. The next day, he asked Congress to declare war on Japan, and Congress voted 470 to 1 in favor. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Wait, who was the one person who voted against going to war? Jeanette Rankin, I know her. She's the first woman elected to Congress, and she voted against World War I also because she was a pacifist. Well... Gotta respect a woman who sticks to her values. Germany and Italy honored their alliance with Japan and declared war on the U.S., and they hoped that this would be mostly symbolic, thinking that the U.S. would now have to spend most of its time fighting the Pacific, which would allow Hitler and Mussolini free reign in Europe. They also figured they were going to need Japan's help fighting Russia at some point, but what they didn't account for was just how, let's say, motivational World War II would prove to be for the United States military because we weren't just going to fight Japan in Asia. We were effectively going to build up enough strength to fight and supply two militaries, one in Europe and one in the Pacific. Cue ultra patriotic American music. Act two, the home front. So. I want to make sure we're really clear on this. The military buildup that happened at the beginning of World War II was nothing short of amazing. 
The U.S. military started the war with 190,000 soldiers, and by the end of the war, we had 8 million. And yes, the military was still segregated. Black units were commanded by white officers and often assigned to non-combat roles like construction or supply units. And we're going to talk way more about the black experience in World War II next episode. But the military was also way more inclusive than it had ever been before, partly out of necessity and partly thanks to Eleanor Roosevelt, who pushed her husband into the 20th century. For the first time, women were allowed to enlist in the military, although only in non-combat roles. They mostly worked in office jobs, and that freed up men to be able to go fight. And it gave women administrative experience for the first time. Again, way more on the female experience during the war next episode. 68,000 female nurses worked in war zones, and there were 300 female service pilots supporting the military. Get it, ladies? World War II is the single most important event for the development of the modern American economy. Period. There's no debate. Like, keep in mind that because of the Great Depression, we were kind of building up our economy again from scratch. And we did that amidst the largest military conflict in human history. We're going to talk a lot about the military-industrial complex later on, but it's important to acknowledge that the war effort was the thing that got us out of our economic collapse. And our economy has been tied to the military industry ever since. So that's why when you look at U.S. spending, an exorbitant amount is on the military, right? The $718 billion we spent in 2019 isn't just going to pay soldiers, it's also going to buy planes, which means that it's going to factories that manufacture parts and mining companies that get the raw materials, etc., right? I'm not making a judgment on this. Like, you can feel however you want about U.S. military spending, but just know that it is basically the thing keeping a big part of our industrial economy afloat. One of the reasons this happened is because the U.S. government implemented what's called the cost plus system. Basically, during the war, the government agreed to pay businesses whatever it would cost to produce war materials plus a guaranteed percentage profit. This was a great deal. And so tons of businesses shifted away from making consumer goods and into making materials for the military. For example, Ford's assembly line stopped making cars and started cranking out tanks and planes. Henry Ford's Detroit factory alone produced 8,600 aircraft. And the auto industry was really critical to the war effort. Over one third of all military equipment was produced by car manufacturers. So, I mean, say what you will about Henry Ford, and I have said it in previous episodes, but those auto assembly lines were pretty helpful. The building of tanks, planes, ships, etc. created 19 million new jobs. And since young white men were mostly off fighting, those jobs went to previously underrepresented groups like women and African Americans. The average American family's income doubled, and the role of the working class was elevated and celebrated as American heroes. But all of this also came with a cost, and I don't mean the obvious cost of, you know, world war, but also the fact that workers just had a lot less say during the war. Families moved wherever the jobs were, often being housed in substandard conditions. Workers earned more money, but that was because they were working longer hours. And the increased tension of war plus new faces in the working environment led to prejudice and sometimes strikes and race riots. So while African-American men entered the factories, the U.S. government also recruited and brought over 200,000 Mexican farm workers to help harvest crops and build and maintain railroads while American men were away fighting. It's at this point that I want to point out that Mexico is probably like so confused by the whiplash of the American government's attitude about Mexican people. Because if you remember just 10 years earlier, they were, quote, repatriating often Mexican-American citizens to Mexico. And now they're like incentivizing people to come over. It must feel quite confusing and quite frustrating. So 
Since the U.S. had been attacked in Hawaii by Japan, there was real fear over another attack. And to be clear, there were other attacks by Japan. Most of them were just hidden from the public not to cause panic. For example, Japanese submarines bombarded coastal targets near Santa Barbara, and the Japanese actually sent bombs over in weather balloons that were timed to explode when they reached the U.S. mainland. These incendiary devices were intended to start forest fires along the West Coast, and a few reached Oregon, killing a woman and five children. But anyway, FDR allowed the War Department to declare most of the West Coast a military zone, giving the U.S. military additional control over the region and its inhabitants. So out of fear of spies or mixed loyalties, most people of Japanese ancestry were forced from their homes and moved to internment camps for the duration of the war. Most families received just 48 hours notice to pack up and leave their homes. Over six months in 1942, 112,000 people were rounded up and sent to, quote, relocation centers. Over half of these people were American citizens. And since there was no official charge or legal reason why they were being moved, there was also no recourse for them to appeal the loss of their property or personal liberty. They were basically just imprisoned without charge for three years. They were mostly sent to desolate locations where they lived in military barracks. And although they were allowed freedom of movement within the camps and kids were allowed to attend school on the premises, like much of their traditional culture and institutions were disrupted. And anyone who resisted was sent to a special camp in California that forced them to work as laborers alongside Italian and German prisoners of war. On this note, German and Italian Americans were also treated with suspicion during the war. They were not allowed to travel, and in some places, personal property and businesses were seized. Over 5,000 German and Italian Americans were arrested and sent to internment camps on suspicion of disloyalty. So, clearly not everything was rosy on the home front, but for the most part, World War II was a unifying event. Most Americans felt in some way connected to the troops overseas and believed they were part of the war, and not just because they were technically potential targets of attacks, but also because the government did a really good job convincing Americans that everything they did at home had a direct impact on the boys overseas. They heard him in Washington and worked out a system to make the food go around, a plan to see to it that everyone gets an equal share of what there is. That plan is called rationing. Oh, here's a plan that's fair and square. Everybody gets their share. No more griping anywhere. Get the point, Mrs. Brown. One for you and one for me. It's as clear as Most products were rationed so that all necessary materials were available for military use. Houses picked up rationing coupons each month for items like meat, sugar, coffee, shoes, and gasoline. My grandma comes and talks to my U.S. history class every year, and the two stories that stick with kids the most are about rationing. So in one, a friend of hers just got a new pair of shoes for the year when they all went out with friends and had a bonfire. Two boys in her class took one of her shoes and began playing keep away, throwing it over the fire. Ugh, preteen boys are seriously the worst. The shoe fell in the fire, like obviously that was going to happen, and the girl was devastated. But moms to the rescue, when the boys' moms found out about it, they both had to give the girl their shoe ration for the year so that she could buy two new pairs of shoes. Success. Uh, my grandma also describes the moment after the war was over when a boy at her school came running down the hallway announcing to everyone that the store across the street finally had chocolate bars again. And kids basically just ran out of class to get in line. And Mama still remembers eating a Milky Way, her first taste of chocolate in years. Side note, if I was a teacher at that time, I totally would have let kids run out and been like, bring me back some chocolate. Any bonds today, bonds of freedom, that's what I'm selling. Any bonds today, 
Scrape up the most you can. Here comes the freedom man asking you to buy a share of freedom today. So the other way regular people could support the effort was by funding the war. Individuals and businesses were encouraged to buy war bonds, basically loaning money to the federal government for the war. And once we won, because, I mean, obviously we were going to win, right? The government would repay the loan with interest as a thank you. And the ad campaign and catchy songs really worked. Individual American citizens bought $50 billion worth of war bonds, while banks and other financial institutions bought $100 billion. And the government needed all the help they could get because the federal government spent $300 billion during World War II. Listen to this. That is more money than the federal government had spent total on anything from George Washington's first term through FDR's second term in office. I'm going to say that again. The amount of money that the federal government spent on World War II in about four years was more than the total amount of money spent by the federal government on everything from George Washington until the late 1930s. So the last piece of the puzzle motivating Americans at home to do their part was Hollywood. In 1942, the Office of War Information was established to improve communication to the American public about the war. Like, you know, just some light censorship and propaganda. They sent guidelines to Hollywood filmmakers asking, will this picture help win the war? And they hired people like Dr. Seuss and Disney animators to make cartoons, videos, and war bond ads. My personal favorite is a Disney cartoon called Der Führer's Face, in which Donald Duck is a Nazi. <laughs> like, uh, this short film was pretty controversial, considering Donald Duck says Heil Hitler like 75 times in 15 minutes. Um, I don't want to spoil it for you. Go watch it on YouTube, and the song is going to be stuck in your head forever. Just Google Der Führer's Face. Uh, Dr. Seuss also helped write a series of informational videos for the troops following a dumb soldier called Private Snafu. Snafu. Situation normal. All... All fouled up. So troops would watch these Private Snafu cartoons as he bumbles his way through the war doing all the things they shouldn't do, right? He neglects wearing his mosquito repellent, he accidentally leaks information, he risks STDs by sleeping with foreign women. And like these cartoons were not intended for public consumption, so they were not um, underneath the same laws about what could be put on film. So like they're pretty racy for the 1940s. Again, I would go watch them on YouTube. So everyone is doing their part, right? Everyone back on the home front is doing what they can, from little kids buying war bonds stamps to put in their stamp book, uh, all the way up to mothers growing victory gardens so that all the other food can be sent overseas. Everyone's doing something and doing their part, but clearly the Americans who are doing the most and sacrificing the most are the members of the military who are fighting overseas. Fighting in two theaters. Okay, and now I would like to cover all of the fighting in World War II by American soldiers in 15 minutes or less. Uh, I'm going to fail. I'll just tell you right now. I'm going to end on a cliffhanger, but I'm, I'm doing my best. So let's just start with the overall strategies, and then we'll go through a few kind of specific battles or events that you probably should know. So in Europe, by 1942, the Allies had been effectively kicked out of mainland Europe, and it was only Soviet Russia keeping Germany from controlling the entire continent. So American troops are working with the Allies to move our way closer to be able to invade the continent. And 
It should be noted that our dear friend Stalin felt like we were moving a little too slowly, considering that millions of his men were dying while we inched our way along. This meant that we were doing a lot of fighting in North Africa and then up through Italy for the first year or two of U.S. involvement. In the Pacific, the strategy was relatively simple. We had to get close enough to the island of Japan to be able to bomb it. And the closest large landmass that was safe-ish for our troops was Australia. And so we basically had to hopscotch around the Pacific, taking tiny islands, building airstrips, and refueling bases, and then moving on to the next set of islands. It's kind of like when you played The Floor is Lava as a kid, and you had two couch cushions to use, right? You could put one down in front of you to step on, pick up the other one from behind you, and move it forward. It was slow, but a really effective strategy. And this island hopping campaign is going to be brutal on the troops on the ground. And it's also going to rely heavily on the Navy, both on the sea and in the air for support. So one note, you might be remembering that at the beginning of the story, we controlled the Philippines, right? So why couldn't we just use that as our base, which was way closer to Japan? Well, the Japanese thought of that. And that's why the Philippine islands were invaded just 10 hours after the Pearl Harbor attack began. General MacArthur, who was basically the head of the army in the Pacific, retreated with his men to Bataan Peninsula, where they held out for three months as they ran out of food, supplies, and medicine to combat disease. And kind of controversially, MacArthur evacuated Bataan to head to safety in Australia. And I mean, he was ordered to do so by FDR. But I mean, MacArthur has a history and a future of ignoring orders. Like, I'm just saying, he could have stayed if he really wanted to. But when he left, he told his troops, I came through and I shall return. So after the defenses at Bataan fell, the remaining troops were forced to surrender and 78,000 American prisoners of war were marched 65 miles to Japanese prison camps. 10,000 troops died on the trip, which became known as the Bataan Death March. And this event is important for understanding MacArthur's motivations later in the war. So basically, there's a debate over strategy in the Pacific. MacArthur wants to use his army to secure larger land masses, liberating places like the Philippines on the way to Japan. But the head of the Navy, Chester A. Nimitz, wanted to just bypass those larger islands, seeing them as a trap, right? We're going to get bogged down trying to conquer those bigger places. He wanted to instead focus on getting to Japan as quickly as possible to end the war. And in the end, they kind of do both. And I mean, spoiler alert, the effort to retake the Philippines, which is what MacArthur wanted, is going to be enormously costly, not least for the Filipino people who, if you'll remember, hadn't necessarily wanted to be in American territory at all this time. <laughs> uh, many historians now see the campaign to retake the Philippines as somewhat of a vanity mission by MacArthur to come through on his promise to return to his troops. And I mean, he does spend a lot of time in front of the camera giving speeches, even while his men are still fighting the Japanese to fully take back the islands. In general, Nimitz's island hopping campaign was the most effective, and it's the one that allowed his navy to shine, which is no coincidence, I'm sure. But it wasn't easy. Essentially, every island had to be taken by storming the beaches into a jungle filled with Japanese soldiers. And we'll talk more about D-Day soon, but if you know anything about it, just imagine that basically every island hop required a mini D-Day invasion of its own. One of the aspects of fighting in the Pacific that is especially fascinating to me is the role that code breaking and code talking played. So if you've seen the imitation game, then you know that this was important in Europe too. But in the Pacific, there are a few key battles where the Americans win, like clearly thanks to the work of US code breakers and or people like the Navajo code talkers. So American soldier Philip Johnston had grown up on a Navajo reservation and he began to recognize how valuable their language could be in the military. He presented his idea to the Marines, who recruited hundreds of Navajo men to man the radios and communicate in their native language. 
It's really interesting because Hitler had actually been fascinated by indigenous American languages leading up to the war. He saw them as an opportunity for covert communication. Like he recognized that this was a weird asset that the Americans had, that they had all of these native people who could communicate in these languages that basically no one else in the world knew about. He even sent Nazi spies to the U.S. in the 1930s to try to decipher the languages, but they were unable to bring back anything useful, in part because there are just so many different native languages and also because they're so complex. Good work, Native Americans. Your insistence on maintaining your cultural heritage in the face of years of war and forced assimilation by the federal government helped us defeat Hitler. So code-breaking would also be especially instrumental in the turning point in the Pacific midway. Now... Oh, I was so naive 40 minutes ago to think that I could cover all of World War II in one episode. And I see that now. I see the error of my ways. So for today, we're going to leave on a cliffhanger. American troops are struggling their way up through North Africa and Italy, trying to figure out how to claw their way back toward Germany. Meanwhile, Americans are wading through tides, taking insignificant islands from Japanese troops, trying to make their way close enough to be able to directly attack Japan. And MacArthur is in... Australia doing something? Fixing his hair? Waiting to return to Manila? I don't know. Next time, who will win the epic battle between good and evil? And what will happen when Americans return home to find that (gasps) women and people of color were capable of doing white men's work this whole time? To be continued.